You're listening to the Gathering Church Podcast, located in Asheville, North Carolina. The Gathering is a place where you can belong before you believe. To find out more, visit gatherashville.org. Well, good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor. Happy Father's Day, dads. Man, I'm as, as a father myself, also happy Father's Day to me. And I did it, man. I'm just such a great dad. I love to honor myself on this day. Look in the mirror and just think, man, you're doing it. You're doing it. My dad is here. I should have started with that. Happy Father's Day to my dad. My dad is the best dad. And I'm sorry to all y'all who he's not your dad because he really is the best one. Love you, dad. And so um, happy Father's Day. Hey, this, uh, this Mac off is serious, okay? My mom made mac and cheese for this Mac off. It is serious out there, okay? There is a $100 gift card to Kurate on the line. So you got to eat. You do not leave without eating one bowl of each mac and cheese. I expect you to eat seven bowls. Ten, I don't know how many we have signed up back there, but as many bowls of mac and cheese as there are pots. And then you've got to vote so that somebody gets to go to Kurate and eat some dinner. It's more fun to it's almost as much fun to say as it is to eat, I think. But the food is really good there. And one of their chefs is a part of our church, and we love him, Andrew Bowie, wherever you are. Love that dude, love that restaurant. So make sure you vote and enjoy it. Well, hey, today for Father's Day, uh, the best gift that I can give to dads is to be as quick as possible and to preach as, <laughs> I know what you guys want. I know what you want. You want to be on a couch somewhere with a mac and cheese belly. So I'm going to get you there as soon as I can. My message today is called The Heart of a Father. And what I want to talk about is what it means to be a father today. What it means to be a father today. If you're here and you are a father, I want to help you learn how to be the best father you can be by understanding the heart of the best father that there is, our Father in heaven. Uh, There's an old leadership adage that says when a leader gets better, the whole organization gets better. I believe when a father gets better, the whole family gets better. And so we're going to talk today about what our Father in heaven is like and and work to understand the character of God uh, so that we can know how to be a better father here on earth. Now, maybe uh, you're here today and you've always struggled to really understand the idea of God as a father, uh, to understand the character of God. Or maybe you had an earthly father who was not a good example of what a father is to you. He brought you more pain than he did comfort. Maybe you grew up around a church or around Christians that gave you the wrong idea of who God is, and so it's always been hard for you. Maybe you've always put your idea of what a father is on him, or maybe you've always put your idea of what he is on a father's, whatever the case is, wherever you are, whether you're a father or not today, I think there's something in here for all of us uh, in this text. Uh, I really just want to study one text today 
There's this really special moment in Scripture where God reveals both his name and his key attributes. The, the scene is as spectacular as it could be. Honestly, if you read the book of Exodus, it's like a blockbuster movie. And between chapters 30 and 35, a whole lot of amazing stuff happens. Moses gets the Ten Commandments on a stone tablet written by the finger of God. How incredible is that? He brings them down. He's so pumped to bring them and show them to all his friends. He's so excited, and he comes down the mountain, and they're worshiping a golden calf because they got bored. And in a real dad move, he just crushes those stone tablets on the ground. He's like, if you don't appreciate them, you don't get them. And he leaves, and there's this whole big ordeal that happens where God's passing judgment because of this, and Moses is interceding, and all kinds of things happen in there. Moses is pretty broken, and he says to God, just show me your glory. Let me see who you are. Let me get a glimpse of what you're like. And, and God does a couple things with that request. First, he lets Moses get a glimpse of his back. Isn't that cool? He gets a glimpse of his back, the back of God. He said, I'm going to cover your, your face with my hand as I pass by so that you don't explode like in Indiana Jones in the last crusade. And then you get a glimpse of my back. And then he, uh, he, so he does that, and then he writes the second, the, the second version of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments 2.0, on some more stone tablets. He's like, please be more careful with these ones. And then he tells him he's going to declare his name before him. He's going to pass by, his presence is going to pass by Moses. And as his, as his presence passes by Moses, he says, he does a very Old Testament thing in the ancient culture. You would describe your name and you would describe your attributes. It was like a title for royalty. It was like if you watched Game of Thrones, Daenerys Stormborn, uh, Queen of the Ant. Don't watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> Roles had all kinds of titles. God describes himself and all his characteristics. And this is a really important moment in Scripture because we see it repeated all throughout the Bible. At any time you see scripture constantly quoted in scripture, it tells us that's really important scripture. This is also really important scripture because it's the only time where God actually tells you what he thinks he's like. See, I think a lot of times we ascribe what God is like. I grew up in church. I grew up in felt board Sunday school. I grew up doing Bible drills. Who, 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 I could get to that. Listen, you ain't never going to find Galatians faster than me, Okay. I will destroy you in a Bible drill. We'll do them after church, and we'll go. We'll be like a standoff out in the parking lot. I grew up in that world, and I, and I remember hearing the attributes of God constantly described to me. He's, he's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. We heard the omnis over and over again. We focused on the power and the majesty of God. He knows everything. He's all powerful. He could be everywhere all at once. He's omni this, omni that. But that's not the way that God describes himself. In fact, I would say those aren't the first things God wants you to know about him. The first thing that he wants you to know about him is what he declares as he describes himself as he passes by Moses. And so it's a really, really special moment in scripture, God is giving Moses unprecedented access to himself. No one has had this much access to God since Adam in the garden walking alongside of him. He was giving him a kind of intimacy that was preparing humanity for the intimacy that would be made possible through Jesus. And so we can know who God is 
It's not this great big mystery. It's not this thing that's out of reach. It's not this thing that you can never truly understand. You can know exactly who he is. He describes it in just the second book of the Bible. And so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 34 today and begin in verse 5. Moses is receiving this and it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. God has a name. He has a name, and it's complicated, and the Hebrew word for it is Yahweh, but they're not even really sure if that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. They're, the meaning for it really is I am is what they think, but it could also mean the one who exists before all things exists, that it, it really just means God. It's his name. It's Yahweh, and the Israelites believed that this name itself was so holy that they wouldn't even speak it or write it. It became tradition to always replace it with Lord. And so when you look in your Old Testament, and a lot of times you see the Lord written down, they've replaced the word Yahweh, or they've even, not even replaced, but translated the word Yahweh into Lord. But here, God is proclaiming his name. He proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. He says his name, Twice. Anytime something is repeated, it is significant in the Bible. God really wants Moses to know him, to know him, to really know him, to know who he is, to know him intimately, to understand him. So he says his name twice. This is who I am. I am Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he describes himself, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. And then Moses responds the only way that you can when God is describing himself to you. Verse eight, Moses bowed to the ground at once. And worshiped. So, what I want to break down this morning, just simply, is who God is, how He describes Himself, what it looks like for us to live that way. First, He's compassionate. Isn't this amazing? I don't know what kind of image you've had about God in your life. Maybe you've gone through enough pain and enough trial and enough tribulation in your life that the first word you would use to describe Him is not compassionate. But that's what he wants you to know about himself. The very first thing that he wants you to know about him is that he cares for you, is that he has compassion for you, is that you have a, a place in his heart. In this ancient culture, order is very important. These aren't attributes just kind of splattered out based on whatever the first thing to come to mind was. Order matters. The first thing that God is, is compassionate. And this is obvious when we study the person and the purpose of Jesus. If you really want to understand God as well, you can look at the character of Jesus, read the Gospel of John, and it will unveil for you the nature of God. And in John chapter 2, there's the story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana. I love this story. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
In verse 4, he says, woman, why do you involve me? Why are you bringing me into this? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother just looked at the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that she did not even continue the argument. Jesus, we're all out of wine. There is no more wine. Well, why, am I, why is this my problem? Do whatever he says. And then she's just gone. It's like, oh my gosh, I love this. Can you imagine? that In this culture, this is a big deal, right? They, they've, they've, they've had all these people. It's, it's a big deal, but it's also not that big of a deal, right? Imagine you had a Mac off and all the mac and cheese was gone after four people had gone through. And there's a hundred people hungry for mac and cheese. Do you feel like in that scenario, maybe you, you, you got invited to a Cinco de Mayo party and your responsibility was the dip. Is there a bigger responsibility on Cinco de Mayo? You got the salsa and the chips and you forget to get, or you buy a bag of chips and it's only full that high in the bag. The chips are gone by the fourth person and you are responsible. Is this something where you're like, I need to get on my knees and get in the presence of God and I need God to provide the mac and cheese for this mac. I gotta get God involved in this event right now. It's a big deal culturally, it's embarrassing, you know, you feel bad about it, you're, you're, you're unhappy that you don't have what you are supposed to have for the event to go well, but is this something we need to involve the one who spoke the universe into existence in, right? This isn't necessarily going to change the course of humanity. This isn't going to show people how good God is. It's just going to help some people who've already had some wine have some more wine. Right? Jesus doesn't do it because this is some big statement that he needs to make. He's like, this isn't even a part of my ministry. My ministry hasn't even started yet. Jesus does it because he's compassionate. It's in his heart. His mother and his friends asked it of him. And he was thinking, oh, this is not my time yet. This really isn't the kind of thing. I love these people. And I'm going to respond favorably because I love them. That's who God is. That's the kind of God we have. He is compassionate. He is a compassionate God. Mary asks Jesus to help, and he does it because of his compassion. There's another story where a man is blind and everyone's ignored him all of his life. His name's Bartimaeus. And one day Jesus is walking by and there's this huge crowd around him and the man tries to get Jesus' attention but everyone's like, Jesus doesn't want to talk to you, Bartimaeus. Hey, Bart, go back to your corner. Jesus doesn't have time for this. He's out of town. He's leaving. The, the healing workshop is over. You missed it, pal. But Jesus stops everybody, stops the crowd, stops the plan, stops where he's going and he says, no, 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 no. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. And they bring Bartimaeus through all these people to Jesus, and Jesus touches him, which nobody was willing to do. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And he heals him because of his compassion, because that's who he is. He sees the people that no one else sees. He stops when everyone else would keep walking. He hears the cries that everyone else ignores. He is a compassionate God. I don't know what your father was like. I don't know what you thought God was like. But the first thing that he wants you to know is that he cares. As a father, it can be easy for me to forget that it can be hard to be a three-year-old. 
It can be hard to be a three-year-old. And three-year-olds are bothersome. They're throwing fits about the darndest things. And maybe they're not getting their way or, or maybe, maybe they bumped their head on the thousandth ledge or table or doorway of the day. But when they cry, and they've been crying a lot, as what I can do, maybe you're not like this, maybe you're a better parent than me, but what I can do is go, ugh, will you stop? Will you quit it? But what I can learn from the nature of God is that instead of losing my temper, instead of getting frustrated, instead of moving on, compassion says, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Tell me what happened. That's the kind of father we have in heaven. That's who we're called to be. He's gracious. He's compassionate and he's gracious. Not only does he care, he cares even when it's your fault. He's gracious. My dad is pretty amazing. And being my dad has required more than the average amount of grace and patience. Luckily for my dad, he was designed that way. Recently, he got a new truck. It's huge. It's awesome, it's beautiful, he loves it. He got this truck and for weeks he was so proud of it. He was showing it to all his kids. He, he was driving it around just like, check out this truck. He was so excited about this big truck and he loves this truck. He also has a boat and it's not new, but it looks like it's new because of the way he's taking care of it. He has spent as many hours watching, washing that boat as he has driving it on the water. It's a nice boat. One day, I was in Charleston just a few weeks ago, very recently actually, and I asked my dad if I could take his boat out and use his truck to tow it. And he said yes. He should not have said yes. I hooked the boat up and I forgot one step. I didn't lock the tongue of the trailer. This is the part that keeps the trailer on the car. It was on there, sort of. So my family and I are driving down the road, and there's some railroad tracks. And I got to tell you, my dad's new truck, it pulls this boat so well that I did not even notice how fast I was going. And I hit those railroad tracks going just a little bit too fast. And when I did that, the trailer came directly off the hitch. Now, luckily, there are safety chains that you hook up when you tow a boat or any trailer. They broke immediately. <laughs> so, here I am in my dad's brand new truck. Boat isn't hooked to anything, flying down the road. In my head, the next best step was to move the truck directly in front of the boat in order to stop the boat. The tailgate was decimated absolutely destroyed. And then the boat kind of veered off and slowly just kind of went past the car while my daughter goes, Daddy, nobody's driving the boat. <laughs> yes, honey, nobody's driving the boat. Every time now since we've hooked up a trailer to my car, my daughter says, Daddy, is the boat still behind us? Yes, honey, not in front of us anymore. Cruised right on by, it hit the curb, and it stopped. I got out, I looked at my dad's truck, the tailgate is smashed in, it's destroyed, 
And so, and the boat is flat on the ground. I didn't know what to do. And then a muscle man pulled over and he was like, I'll pick it up. And he like picked it up and put it back on the truck. And I was like, wow, thank goodness for that guy. And then he left and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh, and, and I have to make the phone call that I have made dozens of times. <laughs> In fact, what was ironic was the first time I ever made this phone call was about three months after I had started driving and gotten my new car and got in a wreck in the exact same spot. I was in the exact same spot that I had called my dad like this before. And I called him, he knew what was happening. I was going out with his truck and the boat. It's 11 o'clock, he's at work. He knows I'm just not gonna call him at work. So when he sees my name on, on the caller ID, he knows. He knows. <laughs> He knows, he knows. So he answers the phone and he says, hello, son. <laughs> and I was like, dad, I'm sorry. I wrecked your truck and your boat. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, you know, he immediately says, is everybody okay? Yeah, yeah, dad, we're okay. And can you still drive it? Yeah, it'll still drive. Tailgate's absolutely, it's one of those cool three-way tailgate. It's gone. It's just, a, it's, it's done. And he says, well, the boat, is the boat damaged? I said, no, the boat's not damaged. Why don't, why don't you guys go out, have a good day on the water, and we'll take a look at it when we get home. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Never got mad at me about it, or at least not to me. Only wanted to know if I was safe, if I was okay, and wanted me to know that it was okay. What I want you to know is that even when it's your fault, your father is more concerned with you than he is the consequences. Even when it was your fault, your father wants you to feel valued, loved, and cared for before anything else. He is a gracious God. And I just hope <laughs> my kids have done far less and have gotten far bigger responses. <laughs> I hope that I can be a dad like that. I hope that I can be a dad who is gracious above all other things. Because that's the kind of dad I got to grow up with. And that's the kind of father that we have in heaven. When you are at your very worst, his response to you isn't anger or fury or rage or disappointment. It is love and compassion and immediate forgiveness because that's who your father in heaven is. He is a compassionate and gracious God. And he is abounding. And he is slow to anger. My notes didn't get updated. We're going on it on our own from here. Here we go. Remember what I said about being quick? That's over now. <laughs> he is, actually, one second. I, I did this two weeks ago and I didn't learn my lesson about updating my iPad. There we go. I'm going to save you guys from some constant rambling today. God is slow to anger. Maybe you've grown up with this image of an angry God who is disappointed in you for all of your failures. 
Maybe you grew up in an old school church where there was a lot more yelling about all the things that you've done wrong and all the sin that you need to repent from than there was talk about how gracious and compassionate God is. Maybe you grew up with a father who made you feel that way. But that is not who God is. He is not angry. He is not furious. He is not filled with rage. He is slow to anger. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. He's patient. Patience is another word for that. And the moment that you return to him, the Bible says he returns to you. Return to him and he returns to you. He is slow to anger. If you're a father, this one is really hard, isn't it? To be slow to anger, especially at bedtime, right? I feel like sometimes it is the goal of my children to make me go insane. Like they want me to, they want to see how far they can push me. They want to see how red they can make my face become. I feel this way because when it's bedtime, their speed slows down to almost imperceptible. They've been doing this all their lives. They know we're going to brush our teeth. Okay, this is a given. We're going to put on pajamas. We're going to brush our teeth. We're going to the bathroom. We're going to get a story. They've never once done all of these things without a constant coaching and reminder. And there are many nights when we get to brush your teeth, and instead of brushing our teeth, the toothbrush is a microphone, and we're singing in the mirror and tossing you know, our hair around and having it again. I'm about to take this mirror off the wall and throw it out a window. There are many nights where I absolutely lose my mind at this stage. Get your act together. Get in bed. You're, gonna, you're not having a story tonight. You're not watching TV tomorrow. I'm taking your pajamas away. You're sleeping in your church clothes. <laughs> I've been there. I lose it. But what I want is for my kids to look back and say that I was slow to anger. I want my neighbors and the way that I interact with them, I want them to think I was slow to anger. I want my coworkers, my friends, I want the people I drive by on Highway 25 to believe that me, I am slow to anger. I believe that if we can learn how to act like God in this way, to be slow to anger, the whole community improves. Proverbs 16, 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. As a man, there is this pressure to be mighty or brave or tough or whatever it is we were told to be. But God says, it's better for you to be patient than any of those other things. Another translation says, it's better to be patient than to be a warrior. James 1, 19 and 20 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There was kind of an understanding in the church world for a long time that if you were going to be a good biblical father, spare the rod, spoil the child, brother. 
you got to get in there and lay the discipline of the Lord upon your children or they will grow up as little worldlings who do not respect the Lord Almighty. you got to put the righteousness of God into your children's. No, that's not what the Bible says. And the Bible says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The Bible says be slow to anger. The Bible says be compassionate and gracious. In fact, I think if you're going to remember one Bible verse, if you've never memorized a Bible verse in your life, that's fine. Memorize this one if you're a parent. Because if you're a parent who's quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger, you're a good parent. Your kids will be blessed by you. Take some deep breaths and make a conscious effort to be slow to anger. Number four, God is abounding in love and faithfulness. Are you getting the picture of who God is? This is the Old Testament God, by the way. Sometimes we think Old Testament God's different than New Testament God. Old Testament God's mad. New Testament God's glad. I like New Testament. No, 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 no. It's the same God. His character is the same throughout the whole story of Scripture. It never changes. It never changes. In Exodus, he is a compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. John says that God is love. In verse seven of chapter four, it says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's easy to look at the world around you and wonder if God loves you. If he notices you, if he cares. Maybe your life's been one bad event after another. I see you. But God does love you. And he doesn't have to prove it by making everything good happen in your life. Because the Bible says he's proved it once and for all. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He, he spent all of that time in the Old Testament establishing why it was such a big deal to him, to have a relationship with you, establishing why it was such a big deal for him to sacrifice his own son to make it possible. Verse nine, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into this world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's someone in this room and you grew up feeling like you had to earn your father's love. I'm so sorry. But what God wants you to know is that the kind of father he is, he is the father who loves first. He doesn't expect anything from you until he's done it himself. This is love. Not, not that we loved him, that he loved us. See, as a father, my kids do not have to earn my love. It is theirs. Every bit that I have to give belongs 100% to them. Nothing they can ever do will change it. It gives them a position to hurt me more than any other person in this world, certainly but they cannot undo the way that I love them. That is what it is like for you and your heavenly father.
No sin, no mistake, nothing you have ever done or ever will do can ever undo the way that he loves you. He gave his son for you before you ever did one thing right. While you were in our sin, while we were sinners, Christ died for us, is what Romans says. So what do we do? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us as parents, as neighbors, as friends, as coworkers, as people in this city. Our response to the way that God loves us so unconditionally, so fully, so complete, is to love our kids that way, is to love our, our friends that way, is to love our neighbors that way, is to love people who drive Ford Mustangs that way. They all drive bad. If you drive one, you got to watch yourself. <laughs> Fathers, love your children. <laughs> I ain't never going back to that church. He didn't like my 5.0 Mustang. He said, I was a bad driver. I'm going to cut him off on the interstate. That'll teach him. (laughs) Tell your kids you love them every day. Don't hide it from them. Don't hide your affection from them. Be present for them. Show up. Don't worry about it when you don't get it right. You don't have to get it right all the time. You don't have to have the perfect thing to say. You don't have to be a dad in a movie with the right wisdom for every situation. Just be there, be present, show up, and that shows them love. When you are present, you don't have to be perfect. When you are available, when you are compassionate, when you are gracious, you don't have to have the right thing to say, dads. You are doing it right when you are loving them well, and that is what they will remember. Number five, forgiving. It says he forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. I hope you're getting the picture. Are you feeling like it's repetitive, like God's kind of saying the same thing? This is who he is. That's why. This is his nature. He forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. At this point in history, Israel is just out of Egypt, but Egypt isn't out of them. They're free from the chains of slavery, but not free from the heart of it. They don't know how to live free yet. And so God spends the next four decades in the desert with them, teaching them what it means to be holy, how to be set apart, and what it means to follow him. Now, they make a lot of mistakes, and God shows both grace and justice, extreme examples of both. And the whole time, God is working towards a bigger plan. The system that's being set up at this moment in Israel's history was all about circumstantial forgiveness. They had to be forgiven for each individual sin. But God was setting up something better. Absolute forgiveness. Forgiveness for anything they would ever do and anything they had ever done. That is the forgiveness that you and I get to live under because of Jesus. There's no qualifiers. There's no circumstances. There's nothing like that. He forgave you once and for all. It's still important for us to strive towards holiness. Hebrews 12 says that. And it's still important for us to confess our sins. James 4 says that. But you are completely and absolutely forgiven right now in this moment. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Parents, let's lead our kids from a heart 
of absolute forgiveness, not circumstantial. When my kids make a mistake, I want to approach it from the beginning in a place of forgiveness, not condemnation. Not here's how you can earn your way back into my heart. Not here's the way you can be a better part of this family. No. I want my children to know the moment they approach me, they are forgiven. Your place in my heart doesn't move. But let's talk about what happened. That's how our Father in heaven loves us, and that's the model we should follow. All of this is important for you to understand that this is who God is. But it's also important that you know that God is just. Maybe I read this whole passage, and you heard that last part about the children's and the punishment, and you're like, ooh, ooh, sheesh, that's a little bit Old Testament. Maybe we should clean that up a little bit. Let's get into it. Because God is a just God. And where there is sin, there is discipline. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This feels harsh. We're talking about generations here. But it's important for us to understand that loving your kids is not the same as letting them get away with whatever they want. Being a good parent doesn't mean always saying yes. Being a good parent means that we need to help them understand there are consequences for our actions. It's our role as parents sometimes to show our kids how much we love them by offering them discipline. It's our role as parents to correct their behavior and help them move into better behavior. How we do it is a whole other conversation, and honestly, I think it's probably more specific to your kids than anything else. Rail and I usually remove privileges like screen time. Our kids love TV so much that to lose it is the worst thing that could happen to them. Taking away something we know our kids want to do, timeouts. It really has changed a lot over the six years that we've been parents and over the age of our kids. And that's not what matters. What matters always, I think, is the heart behind the correction. Do it never because you're angry and want to get back at your kids. Do it because you want them to learn character and integrity and the right way to live. That's the parenting seminar. Now let's talk for a minute about God. Because this whole thing can be tough to swallow this passage. The third and fourth generation deal. The point that is being made in this statement is that God is just and sin just can't go unpunished. Our God is perfectly just. And in his perfection, he has to provide justice for sin. But there's something important that we can notice. He talks about this punishment timeline going down four generations. It has a, it has a limit. But just before that, and mirroring it in the verse, it says, maintaining love to thousands. Thousands would be understood here as an infinite number, whereas the third and fourth generations is finite. This is God communicating that the punishment of sins is going to end one day, but the way that he loves us doesn't. That he loves us before we sin, he loves us while we're sinning, and he loves us a long time after all of that is over. I don't know what version of God you grew up with. Maybe you grew up in a world with traditional church, with you believe God is angry, you think 
Why is this all happening? Why are these bad things happening in the world? Does God even care? Maybe you grew up in kind of the opposite, you know, some, some spiritualism that everything is good all the time and nobody should be punishment. In fact, what is good and bad is relative based on who you are, that really nobody does anything bad except for a very small few, whichever end of the spectrum you grew up with, this is who God really is. This is his actual nature. He is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He forgives everything. Absolutely. And he's just. And because of his justice, that's why it matters that Jesus died on the cross. Because sin and the guilty can't go unpunished. There was no way for God to be in perfect relationship with us the way he desires. He wants it. He made you so that you could be in relationship with him. That is the purpose in your creation. But sin, it was in the way. When we're guilty, we have to be punished. But what our Father in heaven did to make it possible for you to step into relationship with him was he said, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the pain. I'll take the suffering. You've earned death. I'll take death. And Jesus comes and he becomes the satisfaction of the requirement for justice. And every mistake you've ever made, everything that you think separates you from God was put up on a cross and washed away. And now you are absolutely forgiven. Now, why did he do that? Because he's a compassionate and gracious God. So, it's Father's Day. And the biggest thing that I want you to know is that you have a perfect father. No matter what, whether you have a great earthly father like I did or maybe you didn't, you have a perfect father who wants to be in relationship with you. And if you're in here today, you've never been in relationship with him, maybe because you didn't understand him, today is the day. All you have to do is say yes to this offer that he's made you. Just to step into this relationship, you just say, I, I want it. Yes, thank you for the gift. I accept it. And if you're ready to do that, we just start it off with a prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, just say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for being a perfect father to me, for loving me completely and unconditionally. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my mistakes. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. Forgive me for not understanding. I believe in you. I believe this is who you are. And I believe that Jesus made it possible for me to be in relationship with you. And so I give my whole life to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gathering Church podcast is produced by the Gathering Church creative team. Want to get involved? Fill out a connect card online at gatherashville.org 
Find us on Facebook at The Gathering Church or on Instagram at Gather Asheville.